Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about uh, world building and lore building. Uh, today we're talking with Colin Fair. How's it going, Colin? It's going well, thank you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, like how long you've been playing D&D and what kind of games you like to run. I've been playing D&D for a couple of years now. I've been DMing uh, for a little over a year and a half. Uh, I like to run really all kinds of things. Um, open worlds really interest me. A lot of uh, exploration-based games, a lot of you know what what can you find discovery based games and just uh giving my players often a map and saying where do you want to go from here cool so what are some things that you find essential when you're uh, building a world or building any lore uh that you're going to be showing to your players i think in a role-playing game it's really important that the world that your players are playing in the world that you're running your game in feels lived in and I think something that's important about building a world and building lore is that fantasy is great. We're, we're playing fantasy role-playing games. But it's really important that there are also things in your world that are just people living their lives. What happens when people live their lives? Not everybody who populates your world is an adventurer. Uh, in fact, the players typically are the exception to that rule. They're the adventurers going out on quests, going out and doing exciting things, and... The rest of the NPCs, with some exceptions, are common folk, townsfolk, people who are just going about their lives. And they're as much a part of the world as anyone else. So your city might have a great fantastical tower in the middle full of wizards or, you know, a ship in the harbor made of solid gold or what have you for your fantasy world. But it also has things that come around as a result of that. If you live in a city where, you know, say the government is, is a bunch of aged wizards... That's going to affect the way that you live your life as well. It's going to affect the way that things are going in town generally. What does it mean to have an upper class in your city where magic is a, a banality of sorts and you can essentially do whatever you want anytime you want for free? That trickles down into the rest of the world. Uh, so in a, in a word, I guess, the essential for building a world, building lore is making the world seem lived in? What are the consequences of the fantastical elements that you want that are important to your story? How do they affect everyone else's life? All right. So then how do you get players to interact and care with that lore? And it seems like a pretty straightforward thing. They, yeah. they meet the people and stuff, but like, please expand on that. Uh, to get your players to interact with lore is perhaps easier than getting them to care about the lore. <laughs> <laughs> To get players to interact with lore, uh, you just have to build it into your story hooks, into your adventures. Um, uh, to, to stick with my example of our, of our wizard's tower, perhaps they're quest givers. Perhaps they're the target of some kind of infiltration or diplomatic quest. Uh, interacting with the lore is easy. You just build it right into the adventure, and if the players want to move forward, then they need to figure it out. Getting a player to care about lore is harder. <laughs> In... 
yeah. in my yes. yeah, I was just gonna say that like I've got a uh, homebrew world that my players are in and yeah. like I gave them a book of riddles that covers a bunch of like a whole bunch of stuff and like there's like 30 different riddles and it's yeah. all tied to backstory and stuff that like if they figured out a riddle it'd be like an important clue that they would otherwise they'd have to wait quite a while to yes. find out about the only thing the only riddle that any one of the players cares about and only one player cares about this riddle is because it leads to a powerful sword yep yeah and and that's that's kind of what i was going to say is your players are going to care about what they care about and you know the player who wants the magical sword is you know their fun is not less important than the player who wants to explore this rich world even if if that might be more fun to dm for uh, but if you have a player that cares about, you know, getting loot, then you find it's the job of the DM to find a way that the lore impacts that. You know, maybe maybe the lore is is as you say the the history of this sword, and it's going to tell you where to go find it. Well, now the player who just wants the best sword in the world really cares about that lore, even if it's only instrumentally. So, kind of already talked about the integrating the lore into the into the gameplay and role playing there, because you just that's how you get players to care about it. Um, so, what kind of pitfalls should uh, folks avoid if they want to build a more rich world or more rich lore? I think getting stuck on things. Sometimes you'll write a piece of lore. You'll write you know a history of a small hamlet somewhere. You'll write a history of a magic item or a creature or a, or an NPC. And become wedded to that idea. And maybe it just doesn't work. And it's it's one thing to have this world in your head, which is almost like fantasy writing. It's, it's like generating a story. Uh, and it's not always going to fit exactly with uh, the benefits and, and drawbacks of a certain piece of lore from a game design perspective. I think it's really dangerous to become so wedded to something as part of a story that you become unwilling to change it when it doesn't work for game design. And that works if you're if you're writing a story, but if you're running a game for players, that the game design, I think, has to come first. It has to be, how does this serve uh, the, the enjoyment of my players? How does this serve the function that it, it needs to fill in a game? That might be different than the function that it needs to fill in a novel, a short story, a movie, uh, but it's it's important. And it's very, it's very difficult to uh, let go of things, but maybe they just don't work in a game setting. Maybe they don't work, especially when your players start trying to interact with those things. You know, what do you do when you have a, a beloved NPC whose lore and story is, you know, your, your brainchild, and then the party fighter says, I stab him and take his sword. Yeah, I think it's. It, there are certainly going to be times when your players are going to do something that totally interrupts or like destroys yeah. something that you've built, like a fighter just being like, "Yep, I stab him." Or and there's also just going to be times where like you might have something like really awesome that you've written or or dreamt yeah. up, but the way it fits into your lore is it's it's in this city over here, and yeah. you keep trying to bring your players over there, but they're like, "No, we're going to stay here and deal with these problems." So as a DM, you definitely have to be when it comes to like the the world building and the yeah. lore. Like you're not a writer sitting at a table creating a story. You're a DM sitting at a table with a bunch of other people collaboratively creating a story. Like you're there to like to add spice to the world. But if they don't care about going in a certain direction or whatever, then 
you kind of yeah. just have to roll with it. Otherwise, you turn into the like tyrannical railroad and GM <laughs> yeah. that everybody doesn't like. Absolutely, I I'm running a game right now, your standard you know epic high fantasy game, uh, and the the central plot thread is that there are these these cultists trying to bring a figure Valnasha, who is is a god of decay and rot and corruption, into the world. And you know it was it was. A straightforward story in my head. I said, okay, you know, these cultists are, are trying to bring this god into the world. That's bad. He'll break stuff. You know, go get the MacGuffins and then stop him. Yeah. And along the way to get the MacGuffins, a, a couple of our beloved party members were killed. It was sad. And from the next session forward, all the party cared about was finding a way to travel to the underworld and bring their friends back to life. And I thought, okay. <laughs> um, you know, and... and, and you have to change things because if that's what they're going to do, then that's what they're going to do. And, and it's sometimes easy to, to change things on the fly, you know. Oh, you know, good thing it's it's convenient that reality is thinnest in the underworld, so that's where they're trying to bring the god in. But um, <laughs> yeah, there's, definitely, there's all sorts of things that you can do in those situations where it's like either either there's another adventuring party that happened to take care of stuff while you were in the underworld yeah. or or reality is thin as there so yeah. like the really powerful cultists are going to be there and it turns out that like they've captured your friend and you need to release him and yeah. like you can tie it in or you can just have it so that like cool you rescued your friend you get back and now you've got a bad god to deal with like, yeah. there's, <laughs> there's all, all sorts of things that you can yeah. do um, to to work the the plot and whatever that you're you're trying to create yeah. into what your players want to do, but I think the worst thing that you can do is to just say like, no, there's no way into the underworld, can't do it. Oh, of course. I think it's um, I think it's really good DMing to yeah. take something that's <coughs> sorry, something that's happened in the game that you didn't plan for, yeah. PCs dying, and like be able if especially if your players yeah. want to avenge them or resurrect yeah. them or whatever and like taking it the game and turning it towards yeah. dealing with that yeah you know you can tie it in sometimes and absolutely sometimes that work and you know sometimes you don't have to tie it in and stuff can yeah. be happening while they're gone sure and we're having a better game for it because yeah. now it's a story that the players feel invested in oh absolutely they are motivated yeah. to do the thing yes it was a little funny that once we got to the underworld one of my players had become so attached to the new character that he played to get there, that they went and and found his old character. He said, "I don't actually want to play him anymore." <laughs> so so he opted to uh, move on peacefully into the afterlife, and and now that player continues to play uh, Aldrich Alehammer. <laughs> yeah, there, that's definitely one of those times. It's like you mean I threw out twenty pages of notes so that you could say no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. see, that's, uh, it, it's interesting, that kind of, like, oh, I threw out, I made all these notes and stuff, that's, uh, I think that ties back to the thing we always come back to, which is, like, DMs should talk to their players. Yeah. If your players are playing someone new, and they have, they're going to go rescue an old PC, find out if they're enjoying playing the new person, and want yeah. to stick with that, because that's always an option. Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it also opens up, like, the fact that they want to keep playing this yeah. new player, opens up some, like, interesting possibilities later on, like... If they really, really, really need some divine yeah. intervention later on, like it's their buddy coming yeah. down in angelic form. Like, yeah, you can do yeah. cool stuff. Well, that, that's perfect because we were we were the uh, the dwarf I mentioned, Aldrich Alehammer, plays a uh, ancestral guardian barbarian, and so we discussed now that his his old friend is one of the ancestors who comes and protects him when when it's necessary. Nice. Uh, but yeah, we know we had that conversation a, a few sessions in advance of of 
you know, it wasn't, here's your character back. No, (laughs) you know, I I knew that was coming by the time we got there, but we had the conversation. He said, I I, I think I want to keep playing Aldrich, but Aldrich's not going to stop looking for his friend. So we, we still had to go find his friend. Yeah. When you've got a party of players who are very much just there for dungeon crawling, like they just want to kill monsters, get loot, get cool items and get to level 20. A, how do you impart lore to them? And B, like, should you really even try? Like, if they have stated outright that, like, we're just here for dungeon crawling and experience points and gold and killing monsters, is it worth your time to try and build any kind of lore? Or should you just kind of go, like, cool, yeah, you're in a giant dungeon and I can just do whatever? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think you need to, to try and get those players to care about lore. If a player comes and sits down at my table and says, you know, I want to kill things, get XP, hit 20, and have the best loot, fine. You know, it, it, we'll do that. You know, go go kill all the things. You only really need a couple players in your party who care about lore to have enough of a driving force, you know, to, to get from lore point to lore point. They'll be interested in, in doing that work. And... Generally, if there are dungeons and things to kill and loot to find along the way, then the other players are happy, too. In my experience, a player who only cares about loot and XP and gold and, and fighting and dungeon crawling is fine to play in a, in a game where, you know, there's a lore reason why they're in that dungeon. That doesn't ruin the fun for them because they're still doing the thing that they want to do. The lore is a little extra that you give to players who care about it. But as long as you have a few of those and, and you're, you're writing what you need to write for them, you know, if, if everyone at my table is happy at the end of a session, then, then I'm happy with how that went. And if somebody had fun with the dungeon aspect and didn't care about the reason their player was there, that's fine. You know, I, I, don't, I don't lose any of my own enjoyment or think that the session went poorer because, you know, they, they liked seven pieces of the pie and then let somebody else have the last one. Yeah. And I think it's it's important to like as a dungeon master to put in things like if you enjoy building lore, if that's yeah. the thing you like doing, you can put it in there and you can know the reasons why the dungeon works. Yeah. And the players don't necessarily need to care, but that's no. that's for you. Because yeah. you're trying to have fun too, right? And it's it's a way to make it so that not every dungeon is just a series of rooms connected together underground filled with goblins for no reason. Yeah. You know what lore provides to those to those players who just want to dungeon crawl is interesting dungeons you know and and that can influence the game mechanically as well is this dungeon full of traps is this dungeon full of you know pools of acids with oozes coming out of it is it full of crystals that empower goblinoids absolutely you know lore will give you those things that make the dungeons interesting and can make the dungeons challenging you know so it's from a purely game design perspective from from writing dungeons to do dungeon crawls in it it's inspiration it's it's you know okay maybe i'll do this maybe i'll do that otherwise maybe you're just sitting there and it's you know an hour to go until your session you say okay rooms with skeletons (laughs) i feel like you kind of hit upon something there like giving having lore helps you as a dm have a theme for a dungeon, yeah. which helps you do stuff like the the angry GM had a, has a series on like building mega dungeons, and yeah. one of the things that he talked about was how to introduce traps 
to a play to a group of players so that they know that there are traps and this is what they have to look for. And yeah. one of the examples was like like there are uh, like say kobolds or something in your mega dungeon. Yeah. And they tend to try and put traps into like natural crevices and stuff where they'll be where they'll be hidden from sight. And to have the players stumble upon one that was broken by a recent like earthquake or something so that they can find the pieces and they can see how it all sets up and then go oh, okay we have to watch out for like cracks in the wall and like having lore like that lets yeah. you build stuff so that like maybe your characters don't your char- characters players don't care about like the story at all mm-hmm. but they are going to care about the mechanics of a dungeon so Absolutely. having lore in your head lets you build stuff like that so that they're not being surprised by yeah. like unfair traps. Like you can use your lore to just kind of do the game inter- like video game introduction thing, where it's like this is how traps are going to work. Oh and, sure, and like it lets you keep it in your head so that you're not like suddenly throwing a curveball at yeah. them. Yeah, and absolutely, I you know you introduce your players to little bits of lore that you think aren't going to really influence the game other than, you know, fill in the descriptions that you're giving of the world, give it a little flavor. In in our campaign, we have, you know, this this cult that that's worshiping this god and often they have these potions that they'll drink that are effectively suicide potions that are a part of the rituals that they perform to this god. And I just wanted to show use these as a device to show, you know, this is how invested these people are. They're willing to give their lives for their cause. Um, you know, you're really going to have to try and stop them. You know, you can't walk in and say, hey, guys, maybe don't summon this god. You know, they're not going to listen to that. Yeah, and a roll of 20 on a diplomacy isn't going to do <laughs> No, no, it's not, it's not going to change their mind. But it ended up becoming this really interesting mechanic where the players would start looting these suicide potions from the, the dead cultists when they killed them. And then when they had enemies that they were having a hard time fighting, they would try and restrain them and pour these potions down their throat. Oh, um, yes. I live for that kind of stuff. Yeah, That's and it, it was great. It was a great hook for me because part of the the lore for those potions was that they're you know these potions are are giving the soul of the of the departed to yes. the god. So they were fighting these giant poison spiders that they were they were using the suicide potions on, and then you know shortly after they were being attacked by an army of spiders that were being controlled by, you know, the god of decay. Because I said, okay, you're you're giving him more sacrifices. Shortly after that, they stopped using <laughs> the suicide <laughs> potions as a battle tactic, which was which was a bummer. I didn't want to take that away. But also, you know, that it's part of making the world feel lived in. Yeah. You know, those those potions, yes, killed people that drank them. So they, they would kill the target when, when, you, when you make people drink it. But they also do other things. That's why the cultists were using them. And, and those other things have to stick as well. And I feel like that, that, that specifically is great because it gives the party members like, oh, now we're kind of responsible for him <laughs> gaining power. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I love a good bit of game design that is like or mechanic design that's built into the lore. Like, yeah. I um, I ran this fight where there was a, a portal to the Far Realm and a Beholder yeah. coming out of it, but, like, was purposely staying in the middle of it so that people couldn't close it. Right. Um, but the portal, because it's from the far, far Realm and it's all chaos and all this stuff, was doing random effects every turn. Sure. So one of my players got turned into an owl bear. The thing of the fight was to push the Beholder either back into the portal or pull him out. So now... My player, who still has all her, 
her mental stats and all that kind of stuff, yeah. who's playing a barbarian and who is raging and has advantage on athletics checks. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I grapple the bolt, <laughs> push it back into the portal, use my increased movement from my rage to get out of there, and we close it. Yeah. And it was great. And it was, like, built yeah. into the mechanics, but it was also part of the lore. Like, it was, yeah, I love stuff like that. I was just thinking, though, that that whole potion thing you're talking about yeah. reminds me of um, Metal Gear Solid 3, the one set in the jungle where, oh, like, Peter. halfway through the, or, like, Three quarters of the way through the game, you're walking down like a river, and every enemy you've killed, like, will float by in ghost form and take a little bit of your life. So if you've only tranquilized enemies, there's nobody there, and you can just like waltz down this yeah. river. But if you have killed every single enemy, including the bosses, then it is tough going to get to the other side. And I was just thinking of like a dungeon where, like, everything that's taken these potions. It resides in this giant dungeon, and it's like, oh, damn, we used one of those on a dragon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Okay. Uh, if the name Magnasa means anything to you, stop listening now. <laughs> <laughs> stop listening uh, two minutes ago. <laughs> um, that's happened a few times on the podcast where it's just like, oh, I just got a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I hope nobody's listening, but damn. <laughs> I mean, at least we have a delay on the release. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'll have to write it in for next session. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've got like almost a month, I think. Oh, okay. Um, what are some examples of your, your favorite lore and like how they were worked into whatever piece of media they were in? My favorite chunk of lore is, is I don't know what I would call it. I, I guess the... Uh, the extended universe of Stephen King books. Okay. Um, particularly as exemplified in the Dark Tower series. Specifically not how it was exemplified in the Dark Tower movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but in the books, I thought it was great in that it's very explorable. It, it's the sort of lore, actually, that would make for a good D&D campaign. Because it's explorable. There's information you can gain from exploring that will, you know, maybe tell you where you want to go, what you want to do, how you want to fight something. But you can also just read the books and, you know, enjoy this book about, you know, a magic cowboy um, who who hops from world to world. And that's cool. You know, it, it's it's cool to have Easter eggs, I guess, things for the players who do care about the lore. And, and that's something that is true of those books as well, is that there? Are, if you have read, you know, as, as I have because I'm a big nerd, all of Stephen King's books, there are throwaway bits in the Dark Tower series. A character who walks by and says something and leaves and is never important again for the story, who is a character in another book and is just there. And if you've read the books, you know, and, and you, you get a moment of feeling, oh, I know that thing. You know, that, that moment is there for me. Yeah. That's really good to build into a game as well. If you if you have a player who's interested in a particular bit of, of your lore that you've written, especially, you know, give, give them something to... I know that you have been interested in this, so here's the thing that only you'll get because you've you've done that work. That's, that's a nice way to encourage players, and I, I think those books do it well, as well as just being fun. So, so yeah, those is expressed in the books... I'm sure there's there's other lore that I oh, enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite 
uh, pieces of lore was from a video game, um, Horizon Zero Dawn. And it's a game where you're like a, a you play Alloy, this tribeswoman. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting world because like you're like a, a it, like the technology level is like Stone Age, Bronze Age-ish. Like you're fighting mechanical dinosaurs with a <laughs> bow and arrow and like yeah. things that you build from from scrap. And you find out during the course of the game, spoilers, that the game is set like 300 years after uh, some robots that were built by a corporation that like had absolutely impenetrable security went rogue and started killing everything because they were powered by biomass. So they could basically like use nanites to break down a tree into fuel or break down a person into fuel. And they basically went rogue and wiped out all life on Earth, but some other scientists had come up with like, okay, we're going to build these underground bunkers that after all of these robots have finally deactivated, they will replant plants and small animals and reintroduce humans, and they'll also build a couple of robots to like take the place of you know, bigger megafauna like, and yeah. stuff like that. So you find out over the course of the game this this lore of just like there's a reason for everything that you see in this game. Yeah. There's a reason why you don't see bears and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was pretty incredible. I I did I I, uh, I misunderstood it at first. It took me a few hours of playing to understand that no, it wasn't the like five hundredth time that this had happened. Yeah, because <laughs> I thought I thought it was like when I first heard it, I'm like I misunderstood. I'm like three thousand years. Like there's been a lot of cycles, and then no, this is the first cycle. Like yeah. it's okay, but just that idea of just you know being in a world that is Stone Age technology and robot dinosaurs, and you're this uh, like apparently really important person but there is a reason for it there is lore and like an explanation for absolutely and and that's that's rich lore to dive into if you want but the player that only cares about xp you know as we were saying earlier just thinks it's cool to fight robot dinosaurs yeah oh it's like um it's almost like uh, playing skyrim you wander around there's all these books that's like the recorded history of this place that you can interact with and you can read them and they're full like novel lengths of books or you can just be like and this is more or less my preferred playthrough yeah i'm gonna go fight the thing <laughs> yeah yeah it's just like oh there's a book oh there's 50 pages okay i'm closing yeah. it now yeah <laughs> well you open it for long enough to see if you get the the skill increase oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like I, I think it's really cool that that information is there yeah. i just don't interact with it a lot myself and so what are some some lore that you've seen that like it was really cool lore? Yeah. It just took you like a year and like you realized after reading a blog post or something somewhere like, oh that's what that is. <laughs> like it was just really badly expressed, but it was very good lore. You know the example that comes immediately to mind is League of Legends. They've done a lot of work on the lore, and it never matters. You know they you know there's there is a rich history to what is it Rune Terra. In League of Legends? I, I don't know. I think it's Terra. That might be wrong. But there is a rich history to the world that that game is set in. And there are characters that have relationships to each other and are all, you know, fighting in League of Legends for reasons. And it, there's, there, to my knowledge, is not a single mechanic in that game in which that ever matters. And to the typical League of Legends player, I'm sure that that doesn't matter. You know, it, that's, that's why it's a successful game despite it. But... It feels really wasted to me, you know, that 
that you don't even go so far as to have, you know, unique unique effects in the game that are maybe purely decorative. Uh, there's maybe one or two, and because nobody knows the lore, you'll see it when it comes up. You know, there there's one where if two characters end up fighting each other, you know, there's there's a unique little dialogue that plays between them because they, they know each other in the lore. And the first time I ever encountered that in game, I was just confused. Because I had no idea that these people were supposed to know each other and have a history. Um, you know, given that one of them is a, is a you know, guy who throws clocks at people to deal damage. <laughs> and the other is a, is a monstrous space squid that, you know, rips holes in the fabric of reality. And, and they're having this exchange. And I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. Now, I'm, I, I googled it after. And, you know, sure enough, there were people on the internet who knew the thing and, and explained it. But, yeah, a, a rich lore that I don't think is even accessible by playing the game. It's the same thing with Overwatch. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, Overwatch has got, it's got this backstory, it's got yeah. the story, like, and it's the same kind of thing, like, in, in the, in uh, waiting rooms, I guess, while you're waiting for a match to start, when, yeah. like, you're selecting a hero and, like, the timer's counting down, there are lines that, like, like some characters... Uh, usually, like, every match, like, the game will, like, randomly select two characters and just have them, like, say, like, a short little thing to each other. And some, like, it's total hand-waving because, like, there are, like, characters that, according to the lore, are, like, bitter enemies. They would never work together. But you're playing a video game, so they, like, if somebody picks... Yeah. If somebody picks uh, Winston, the big gorilla guy, and Reaper, the, like, partially undead shotgun man, like, these are bitter enemies. <laughs> like, one of the videos that they put out of the... Because they do, like, every few months they'll do a 3D animated, like, yeah. short video that's just, like, it's a little piece of lore. Yeah. And one of them is Winston and Reaper fighting. And, like, now you're sitting in a room with two of them just being like, I don't like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's It feels like it's kind of the thing with a lot of those style video games like yeah. um mobas and uh whatever type of game overwatch is team it, shooters yeah team shooters where it's like there can be an amazing lore behind it yeah. but at the end of the day you're playing a game where you shoot other people in the face like yeah well if i if i want to you know if i'm sitting around in my room one day and i say i really want to explore some some good lore i'm not booting up a moba yeah. that day yeah. Um, you know, there are, there are other games to play that's not the attraction that those games have. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll play League of Legends if I feel like not thinking for a while and going and killing people as a giant space squid. But then why write it? <laughs> I, I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, that's, that's how they get some people interested in the game. Yeah. Like, it's one of those things, like, there are things, like, when it comes to video games, if you just told people, like, this is just a, uh, it's a MOBA and it's got more characters than this other one where it's a it's a team uh, like an objective based team shooter kind of like team fortress 2 like people are just gonna like well, i'm gonna check out team fortress 2 but like yeah if they encounter on youtube like that's my first experience with overwatch was with these videos that they put out and i'm like wow like blizzard put a lot of time and effort into these i'm gonna check out the game yeah versus like just trying to watch an esports match and having no idea what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, at least in Overwatch, occasionally you get events that like reflect the like lore and backstory and stuff, where you can only use certain characters because these are the people who are on this mission where they fought the, the whatever. Yeah, but yeah, it's like it is kind of frustrating that there is a bunch of the lore for it, and it does not matter in the game yeah. most of the time. Uh, what are some small, easy ways to get started with? Exp 
exposing lore uh, of a homebrew setting or even like a one of the pre-built settings yeah. uh, to your players. I like items for that, um, especially magic items. Uh, and we we run a system in in our games. My my players don't really know this, <laughs> um, but a lot of the magical items that they have can be effectively leveled up by doing the things that in the lore make that item more powerful. Okay. Um, and, and I call it uh, a legendary item mechanic, even though that's a bad name because I believe legendary items are a thing that exists. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you have Hal 9000, the Halbeard. You know, that, that is, you know, previously owned by the... I, I didn't pick that name. <laughs> but, I it, but it's stuck. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe it was used by this this more ancient order of paladins. And, you know, it, it became a magical item because it was gifted that power by the god that this order of, of paladins was devoted to. And so there are holy sites to that god and there are holy rites that that god would perform. And... You know, the player who, who has that halberd is one of my most lore-interested players. Prob- probably my lowest, most lore-interested player. And she knows a lot about this order because it's, you know, her character is descended from some of these paladins. She has a weapon that was used by this order. And the more she learns about this god that gave this weapon power, the more of that power unlocks. And so... On the one hand, you know, I could say, okay, you have a plus one halberd that will later be a plus two halberd that will later be a plus three halberd, just so you're keeping up with, you know, the the level progression with the the difficulty of enemies you're facing. But this gives her something to do, you know, it, it provides useful quest hooks. And it also is something that is not only a way to introduce lore to the players in bite-sized chunks but also a way to help guide coming up with lore in bite-sized chunks because maybe i'll be noticing oh you know this player of mine you know maybe somebody else they're they're lagging behind in combat a little you know they're they're not contributing as much damage to the fighter as much you know zone control to the fight and i feel like the player feels like they're not doing enough okay that to me as a dm it, it's time to to find a way to give that player or that character a bit of a power buff okay, what have they got on them that is potentially upgradable to, to provide a power buff in the way that you want? And how could that be realized for the player so it's not just handing them something at the start of a session? So you you are able to kind of say, okay, here's a tiny chunk of mechanics that is uh, that I need to address as, as a game designer. Now here is a tiny chunk of lore that I can stick to it so that to your players, you're the DM sitting there giving them bits of lore. And because that's more fun than than a DM who sits at the table and hands you mechanics. Yeah, it just I had a thing and then my brain just went, ha yeah. I, I have a thing. I, I really like that. Because yeah. I feel like you're rewarding players for interacting with the lore by yeah. you know, increasing their weapon and then they like I I like magical weapons that like level up. Yeah. I feel like that's great and you like you grow to be attached to this thing, yeah. right? Yeah, and then you don't just throw it out when you find the plus two one. <laughs> yeah, um, and especially if you know it can be increased yes. in power. Uh, but I feel like it's also good because it doesn't penalize the character or the players who aren't super interested in the lore because they could just find a plus two sword eventually or sure. whatever. Yeah. 
Uh, I I think that's really great. Yeah. Sean, do you, should we move on to the last question? Yeah. You want to? Yeah. So when you first started out, like if you could chisel something into a stone tablet and go back in time and throw it at yourself when you first started jamming, <laughs> what would you chisel into that tablet? The MacGuffins are a stupid idea. No, <laughs> um, no, I, I, I wouldn't chisel that. Don't try and do too much. It's okay to only know a few weeks in advance, because if you plan three months in advance of story, you're not going to get there. You're not going to get there unless you're the railroad DM that nobody wants to be, because things happen, and, and it's okay. It's okay to let go of the best story that you thought you could write, because I think I'm good at coming up with stories. But I don't think that I'm better at coming up with stories than the collective of myself plus all of my players. Yeah. Right? Because I'm still there, but now I also have all of these other sources of input and inspiration. The game that we're playing and and the story that we're playing out is better than the one I would have written on my own. It's really tempting when you're starting out as as a DM, especially, or perhaps not especially, but, but even... If you're an experienced DM, I think, and you're just starting out on a new campaign or, or a new series of one-offs or a new some a new project to say, okay, here's the whole thing. And then, A, you do a bunch of work that you're not going to get to use because your story will go off the rails. B, you have to be disappointed that, you know, you're not getting to do that that one really cool bit that you'd already thought of. But C, it's, it's not going to be as good as the story that you can come up with with the input and help of your players. So just, you know, do that other better thing from the beginning. Have a starting off point, have a goal, have a plan for where you want to go. You know, those those are important. You need those to run a game. But see what happens as well. You know, is this the story of the bunch of heroes who, you know, are just going to do the right thing no matter what? Or, you know, is it the story of, you know, the kind of shady rogues who are out for themselves and happen to save the world by accident along the way. <laughs> you know, especially because generally you write a campaign before your players have, have rolled their characters. And, you know, the, the characters in your story say a lot about what kind of story you can write. Yeah. Yeah, like, you can, <laughs> you can have... You can figure out the main, like, plot points, but anything beyond that... Because, like, having... Players who want to do Reservoir Dogs is very different than players who want to do Ocean's Eleven. Yes, and it's something that I found like I, I like so so many other things <laughs> I've figured out while doing this podcast yeah. is that like I came up with way too much story and background and all sorts of stuff when I was creating this this homebrew world that my players are yeah. in, where I could have just figured out a couple of the like the major plot points and just like figured out how to link them together as we were playing because for sure there's a whole bunch of stuff like we're getting to the middle kind of of the plot and there's a bunch of stuff that i'm having to throw out and rewrite because just the way that they've gone through the story has changed how things should work yeah and like i don't feel bad about having to throw out a bunch of stuff because like i'm just becoming a better dm as we play more and as we do this podcast, but it is a little disheartened to be like, I did too much work. Yeah. Yeah, it always, um, we've we've made this illusion before. It sucks to pick up the big notebook full of notes and just yeah. throw it in the garbage. Yeah. 
I just wanted to say, because I was, I was thinking again about small, easy ways to get lore to your players. And one that's been a really useful tool to me and, and hopefully to, you know, other DMs who are looking for something is holidays. You know, think of, you know, the world, you know, Canada or medieval Europe or the Middle East or East Asia or some part of the world or some historical period that you're interested in. Holidays say a lot 